Welcome back to the International Chronicles of the Chester Fritz Professors. This is the first story in the travels of Jim Galgadet. Before you start, I'd like to walk you through two things that I think are really relevant to appreciate this story. First, the story is a good example of what this project is about. It uses a storytelling technique that's common in Lovecraftian fiction, of one character telling another about something. There's a trick to making that kind of narrative style compelling, and I hope I've cracked the code. Second, I try very hard to weave historically accurate information into these stories. In this case, I was able to build off of recently declassified CIA documents on the Soviet Union's research into the occult. I took a few liberties, but not nearly as many as you would think. This is also a good time to highlight that for about the last six months, I've been posting inside baseball notes to a blog. You can read about the Soviet Union's occult research and lots more at www.chroniclesofchesterfritz.com. Jim watched as Vasily Petrov pushed magazines and dirty dishes to the side of the coffee table and placed two metal lock boxes onto the stained and crumb-coated surface. Jim leaned forward eager. Two boxes, Jim asked. He only mentioned one. The old man's eyes flashed black onyx, and he held up the single key. He tried it in one of the boxes. It fit into the lock but would not turn. The second lock responded to a twist of the key. Vasily relocked the box and pushed it toward Jim. This box, you can read. Vasily's accent was rough and deep, harsh sounds, his tongue having never developed the forward placement needed for American English phonemes. This other box. Vasily gestured to the still-closed lockbox. I don't have a key. Jim nodded. He unzipped his fanny pack and pulled out the thick envelope. Vasily took the envelope, pried open the flap, flipped through the stack of $20 bills with a meaty thumb. Satisfied, the old Russian held out the key, which Jim took, his heart pounding in the hope that he had not traded away a sizable portion of his savings for an empty case. He fitted the key into the lock and turned at a quarter turn. Lifting the lid, Jim did a quick inspection of the contents. The hundreds of pages of paper were yellowing, but hadn't turned brittle. The ink from the typewriter was purpling, but was unfaded. They're in English, Jim observed. I spent 1982 translating files for a writer. English. He wanted to know about Soviet research. Much like you. I do not remember his name. It was lonely or something. I don't read fiction in English. It is also thin and empty. Your characters are stereotypes. Jim ignored Vasily's casual slight of the English canon. These are originals, he observed. Vasily made a non-committal gesture. I sent the writer photocopy. And can I take these files? Jim asked as he drew folder after folder out of the black steel box. No. You and I, we go to Kinko's tomorrow and make copies, pages you want. Translation took me one year, maybe more. Jim nodded, accepting the terms the old man was imposing. Looking at the stack before him, he realized it would take the night simply to assess each document, to make some preliminary notes, and maybe to start a second pass. It wouldn't be the first all-nighter Jim had logged, but it would be the first he had done since graduate school in the late 1970s. Jim picked up the first file and leaned back on the couch to take better advantage of the lamplight. Vasily lowered his weight into a lazy boy recliner and pulled a lever to elevate his feet. I'm going to watch my shows, the old man explained. You can read. I'm sorry my translation is bad. You remember how terrible my English was, and many of the words do not have good friend. Jim furrowed his brow, trying to work out Vasily's meaning, before realization came to him. 
Cognates? He offered. Sure, cognates. Vasily replied as he fiddled with the TV remote in one hand and worked the screw top off a bottle of liquor with the other. Jim was pleased to find the documents were not simply raw intelligence reports, but had been organized by theme. The stack he started with seemed to be a briefing papers on the history of the Soviet Union's occult and psychic studies programs, programs that traced their origins to the court of Nicholas II and hinted at more ancient roots. The patronage of the Tsar's occultists had persisted under Lenin, who had paired each mystic with an apparatchik to ensure the paranormal powers were bent in the service of the revolution. Stalin, however, had wasted no time in crushing the Tsarist charlatans and the nascent study of the occult as counter to the tenets of historical materialism. For a generation, Russia's considerable occult resources lay dormant. It was not until six years after Stalin's death that the study of the paranormal could be revived. The catalyzing event came in 1959 when Leonid Vasilev published a book on parapsychology, Mysterious Phenomena of the Human Psyche. The book circulated within the party leadership, and Vasilev was given Khrushchev's personal backing to establish an institute at the University of Leningrad. Jim made a note in a small moleskin notebook that he kept in his front shirt pocket. The University of Leningrad had been a seat of Soviet occult research in the 1920s when Bekatrev and Durov had explored the control of animals through psychic energies. It was the kind of detail that might be meaningful, or might simply reflect sociological dynamics within the USSR that he couldn't understand. Even through the crude translation provided by Vasily, Jim came to appreciate the charismatic genius of Vasilev and loathe the man's subtle ad hominem style of argumentation. Vasilev constantly buttressed the plausibility of his research by documenting the failings of his detractors. Jim underlined a particular passage that irritated him. Quote, we are so far from knowing all the forces of nature and their various modes of action that it would be unworthy of a philosopher to deny a phenomenon simply because they are inexplicable at this present state of our knowledge. End quote. A little further down the page, Jim's pen stabbed in irritation. Quote, the more difficult it is to acknowledge their existence, the greater the care with which we must study these phenomena. End quote. Yet in spite of his vulgar rhetorical instincts, Vasilev was fantastically successful in reviving occult studies. By his death in 1966, there were Psi Institutes across the USSR and the Eastern Bloc. Jim set the Vasilev file down and made a couple additional notes to himself before starting on the next file in the stack. As a cat food commercial blared in the background, Vasily pulled the lever on his lazy boy. The recliner rotated, providing forward momentum that helped the old man get his feet under him. I am going to piss and to get another drink, Vasily declared. Jim asked for a cup of coffee and was met with a counteroffer of International Cafe Instant. Jim thanked the old Russian as some caffeine was better than no caffeine. Jim watched as the old man waddled into the kitchen. He had a strange kind of bulk. He wasn't fat in any traditional sense. He just had the feel of a tree trunk. Each limb was thicker than was appropriate, so that his movements all appeared lumbering. Jim noted that the man's hair had grayed considerably in the last 15 years. Likewise, Vasily's leathery skin had taken on lines deeper and more permanent. 15 years didn't seem like that long, but the erosion of the human body accelerated with age. Jim shook off the morbid thought and turned his attention to the next file. It was a survey of a debate between Russian and Czech scientists over the nature of psychic studies. Both agreed fully that there exists a fifth state of matter, bioplasma, that was formed of particles charged and operating through a uniform energy network, 
Machines of all types were developed to facilitate experiments that sought to measure, control, collect, direct, or insulate bioplasma. The Prague-based occult theorist Joseph Wolff's typology of parapsychological phenomena seemed a common reference point for researchers in the USSR and the Eastern Bloc. Wolff's typology consisted of triangles inscribed in circles and circles inscribed in triangles. The creative arrangement of these geometric principles was taken as the foundation for understanding a wide range of psychic phenomena. Jim was studying the diagrams which Vasily had drawn out with the meticulous detail of an engineer when the Russian man returned with a mug of coffee in one hand and a bottle of wild turkey in the other. As the old man sat down in his chair, a steady rhythmic thumping began against the wall across from them. The thumping seemed to intensify. Neighbors, the old man said by way of explanation. They fuck like rabbits. Every night they bang on the wall and moan and scream. Ah, fuck them. Vasily hurled his empty liquor bottle at the wall. It dented the sheetrock but delivered a serious counter thud. Shut up, the Russian bellowed, and then to himself, let the man watch the naked night in peace. The next set of files contained detailed reports of successful studies. There was a telepathic communication across 1,500 kilometers that Vasilev had documented. There were reports of Boris Aramilov's levitation of objects, Nina Kogania's ability to control the heartbeats of frogs and other lesser creatures, and Alla Vindikrova, who had been able to push objects across an electromagnetic grid using her mind. Each report contained fantastic promises of the potential to be unlocked, completely secure communication, tortureless interrogations, the untraceable theft of objects across any distance, instantaneous warhead delivery. In these miracles dangled the promise of a worldwide revolution and the triumph of Marxist-Leninism. It was always just a single discovery away. They left the Kinkos, each with the briefcase in hand. Jim was exhausted and desperately wanted to retreat to his hotel room and surrender to sleep, but he was not done with Vasily. As he had made his third pass through the documents around 6 a.m., the niggling sense that something was missing came into focus. With each document, the absence of certain lines of inquiry became more clear and conspicuous. Thus, he steeled himself and invited the Russian out for breakfast. Vasily selected a greasy spoon, creatively named the Corner Grill as it sat on a street corner. The feel of the place promised a particular kind of meal and a particular kind of coffee, but in that commonplace sense, it had a distinctive charm. Charmingly, the waitress encouraged them to get their own coffee refills from a three-pot industrial coffee maker at the other end of the dining room. Also charming, in an overly mundane sense, were the menus. The blue cardboard menus were a masterpiece of combinatorics involving four meat options, three bread options, and multiple eggs ranging from one to three in every possible combination, each numbered for ease of ordering. The coffee was weak, as was the taste of the generation that had weathered the Great Depression. It was largely inoffensive, but lacked the kick that he needed to keep his mind from wandering. Vasily too sucked at the coffee like an addict. The man had seemed largely fine when he woke up. Jim had expected him to show signs of a hangover given that he had passed out in his chair around 2 a.m. Yet the old man seemed unfazed. Jim initiated the conversation by praising Vasily's translation and organization of documents. Jim remarked on the differences in approach between the Czechs who thought that any person could be trained to be a psychic and the Soviets who saw it as a special skill or genetic mutation. Vasily harumphed, refilled his coffee. Jim did likewise, then picked up the conversation as if uninterrupted. He hinted that there were some gaps, particularly related to the Novosibirsk Institute, and asked if a second box might have additional documents. No, 
Vasily said curtly. Then after a second, these things are finished. Some things are better to forget. Jim perked up at Vasily's tacit admission that he was holding back documents and pressed ahead, noting that it wouldn't do harm to look through things. You Americans are all entitled fucks. Vasily snapped in response. I tell you it is closed, and you ask to open it up. Why? So you can hate me for what you find? So you can call me liar? That you don't believe? Bah! Vasily snapped up a newspaper from a neighboring table and made a point of ignoring Jim. I'm not going to call you a liar, Vasily Petrov. I've seen too much to call a man like you a liar. Jim's voice was low. Vasily ignored him, obtusely intent on the paper. Jim sighed and began unintentionally unscrambling the word jumble puzzle on the back of the newspaper. A minute later, Jim was done with the puzzle and was conscious of the waitress approaching to take up their order. Upon her arrival, Vasily was forced to put the newspaper down to engage. After the waitress had tallied their numerical defined orders, Vasily tossed the newspaper back onto the neighboring table. You buy me breakfast and I tell you story. Jim nodded, not sharing that he had already planned to pick up the tab for the meal. I grew up in Stalingrad. I was tender in the siege. I listened to radio and learned German. I learned German so I can help to kill them. But decade later, I start graduate school in East Germany. Life is strange. Vasily withdrew a hard pack of cigarettes from his shirt pocket and tapped the pack against his palm before shaking out a cigarette. With a practiced hand, he struck the paper match and set flame to the tip of the cigarette. Vasily tossed the match into an ashtray and continued his story. I had Czech girlfriend. She said we should go double Dutch. So I met the man, an American, Bill Smith. We made small talk. We had some drinks. We went our separate ways, and I fucked my girlfriend. A week later, she asked me to help the American move. I help, and he buys me a bottle of vodka. I see him a few more times, and then a few more. When my girlfriend goes back to Prague, he is my only friend in Berlin. I defend my dissertation in 1958, I'm 26, and I am given position with Soviet space program. It was a good deal. When my friend Bill Smith heard I was going back to the Soviet Union, he told me that he was worried for me. He said, if I need him, I could always ask. I say, why would I need you? I am going to be a great man in Russia. We have Spodnik. You have Jim Crow. He said, things change, and people get into trouble, and it is good to know how to get help. I knew what he wanted. I took counter-espionage course before leaving Soviet Union, but I think, is it so bad to have this thing in my mind? And I worked out a plan, passing notes in Moscow. It was nothing, just small note, once a year. You were taking quite a risk, Jim said. Eh, we used dead drops. It was very safe. Vasily took a pull of his cigarette and then vented the smoke in a slow, thoughtful stream. There were bad years under Stolen. So I do this thing. But Khrushchev, it wasn't so bad. I like my job. I meet nice Russian girl. I design electronic systems. I'm doing good thing for my country. Vasily paused. He looked at his cigarette as though he was considering another drag, but then stubbed it out in the ashtray. I was working on Salyut 1, and my wife is pregnant. It was not good. She had... I don't know the word in English. But it is high blood pressure. She dies. The baby dies. It affects my work, and maybe I get something wrong. Maybe not. Vasily leaned back in his chair, tilted his head up to the ceiling. He held that position for a minute. Jim tried to give the man space to collect himself. When Vasily lowered his head, he rubbed his nose and drained his coffee before continuing his story. When the Soyuz 11 crew die, I take it very hard. My boss, he says, don't be weak man. Don't be little child upset about death. I was angry. I think it would not have been this way under Korolev. 
When the Americans land on the moon, I think maybe my good friend Bill is right. Maybe things are different now. I'm doing dead drops once a month. And people, they are telling me stories about the United States and what I can do. I could work on a Apollo program or maybe I could oversee new American space station. Um, but there is catch. I need to get documents. Vasily paused while a platter of sausages, eggs, and hash browns was laid in front of him. Jim nodded in appreciation as his over-easy eggs and toast augmented with a double order of bacon was delivered. So I tell Kerimov I want to transfer from Salyut program to working with cosmonauts. He agrees, and I start the new job, creating electronics to help cosmonauts learn biocommunication, or what you in the United States call ESP. Sayokolsky so was a big proponent. He said understanding the secrets of the human mind was a necessary step for space exploration. So we worked on telepathy with the cosmonauts. Jim tried to keep his smile from cracking, but apparently his effort failed. Fuck you, Vasily snapped. You think it crazy, but Edgar Mitchell conducted more than 100 ESP tests during Apollo 14. So the Americans and Tsiolkovsky were both working on the same problem. It is this. If we send a man out into the stars, he will go mad. No one can stand the isolation. And the radio waves are too slow. A man could live his whole life waiting for a single communication. So the solution, and some say the only solution, is communication outside of space and time. It was hard work. Most people are shit for biocommunication. And on Earth, the cosmonauts were terrible. We worked for years and had no success. But in space, they did better. Jim nodded. So that's how you got access to the Soviet research on the occult. Duh. There was so much. I collected for three years until I had all the secrets of the Soviet Union had made about the occult. And when I had done this thing, I asked to go to conference in Sarajevo. After the conference, I present myself at the United States Embassy and I defect. I think maybe I will be hero. Maybe I will be a rich man and live in California and get new American wife. I think many things. Vasily stabbed the bubble of yolk of his over-easy egg. The yolk spilled out, and Vasily stirred the liquid aggressively into his hash browns. Bill Smith was at the embassy. He greeted me, and take my microfiche I make. I stayed at the embassy for three months, while they studied documents. Smith, he told me that my documents are fake. CIA said I was Soviet agent, and trying to trick Americans into researching psyops, or to trick American academics into working with Soviet colleagues, and recruiting them as agents. Smith said President Carter he wanted to send me back to Russia, but I would be allowed to come to the United States. Jim realized he hadn't picked up his silverware, so focused had he been on Vasily's story of disillusionment and defection. I asked him about the job at NASA, and Bill Smith he laughed. He said I could get a job at McDonald's if I work on my English. I was given $500 and flown to Texas. I had one suitcase with some clothes and picture of my wife and an extra microfiche roll that I hid in lining of suitcase. For three years, I studied English, and I betrayed my country again and again and again. I sold documents to the British and French and Germans and Chinese. Jim looked down at his eggs, unable to meet the old man's eyes. He'd been so focused on getting documents from Vasily, he'd never considered that each file represented an act of treason that had altered the man's life. The $4,000 he had handed over the night before suddenly seemed a pitiful sum. When my English is good, I applied to North American Rockwell. I think maybe I can go to California, work on new space shuttle, but I'm told no. I applied to Grumman, and no, and General Electric is no. I applied to all the contractors, and those always the same. I say, I'm Vasily Petrov, I was engineer on Salyut 1, and they say no. But the Ronka says maybe, 
competent CIA called Ronka and said, no, we cannot have Soviet spy working on Shell program. But I'm almost out of money. And I say, I can do anything. Maybe sweep floors or dark blueprints. Ronka say, you can work in the patent office. And I say, okay. Jim nodded. And that's where our paths crossed. Yes, that is where I meet skinny kid from Chicago who wants to be professor. Vasily rumbled. He worked two years at Ronka and got promotion. I work 18 years and still have same desk, still same chair, still same shitty job. Do you think I want my shitty apartment? Do you think I want to live in Ohio? This is garbage life. Jim nodded. I'm not sure what to say. I guess I'm sorry things didn't turn out the way you hoped. You made a huge sacrifice and you, you took a risk and it didn't work out. Eh, bah, Vasily said around a mouthful of hash browns. CIA thinks I am a liar. So CIA makes sure I have shit life. Jim knocked on the door and waited while Vasily hobbled over to answer, peered through the peephole, and then set the chain to the frame before opening the door. You said you were going back to North Dakota, Vasily said. Jim shrugged. Our conversation a couple days ago got me thinking. I'm worried about you, Vasily, Jim said. Oh, thank you, Jim, for your concern. But it is not your business. Jim shuffled a step to the side so that he could better see Vasily through the crack in the door. Can I come in? he asked. No, Vasily said with bluntness lacking any of the niceties of American communication conventions. I, I know you had a hard life, but it's not the CIA that's been holding you back at Aronka. Jim was worried Vasily would shut the door on him, so he pushed ahead. There were rumors and talk about you when I worked there, so I talked to some people at the corporate office and I got a copy of your personnel file. Jim held up a manila folder, nearly an inch thick. Why do you give a fuck? Go back to university. Jim hesitated and spoke. You think people are out to get you. You think the CIA is working against you. But you're not facing facts. The only one sabotaging you, Vasily Petrov, is you. You're abusive to your colleagues, insubordinate to your supervisors, and frequently drunk. If you weren't such a damn fine engineer, they would have fired you after your first six months at Aronka. Fuck you, Jim, Vasily said and slammed the door. Jim stood for a minute, facing the closed door, uncertain what to do. The impromptu intervention had not gone at all as he had imagined. Jim sighed, and yet how else could it have gone? It was naive to think that facing the reality of his personnel file would be welcomed. Yet Jim had hoped that if Vasily had been able to see himself as others saw him, as painful as that might be, it would help him let go of his paranoia. After a minute, Jim crouched down and set the folder against the doorframe. I'm leaving this for you, Vasily, he called through the closed door. There was no response. Jim winced at the bitter coffee and considered adding skim milk and possibly sugar. He had much preferred the coffee at the corner grill. It was, he admitted to himself, quite the letdown. He'd heard so much talk from friends from graduate school about Starbucks coffee shops, but the experience was actually quite uncomfortable. The clientele seemed to be a mix of Kurt Cobain look-alikes. Jim felt mildly out of place. His checkered dress shirt was the fashion antimatter of flannel. He wasn't the oldest person in the coffee shop, but the Pax Christi group assembled on the couches in the corner of the cafe only emphasized how culturally out of place he was. For years, he hoped the university bookstore would bring Starbucks, but the local coffee scene was saturated by Canada's Tim Hortons and the Minnesota-based Caribou Coffee. Now the prospects of a Starbucks arriving in his quaint little town seemed an unnecessary intrusion. Jim grimaced as he forced himself to take another sip of the coffee. He wished he had ordered something smaller, 
but the unexpected confrontation with an Italian menu had disoriented him, and he had opted for the grande size because it seemed the easiest to pronounce. Jim was about to get milk for his coffee when Vasily pulled open the glass door. Jim waved the old man over and offered to buy him coffee. Vasily declined, apparently still angry about the earlier conversation in spite of requesting a meeting. Vasily set a briefcase on the table and rolled through the three-cylinder combination before popping the dual latches. I went to the Kinkos, Vasily said, drawing a stack of papers just shy of a ream. You want the files in other box? Jim nodded. I think maybe I give them to you. I think maybe you will learn about Soviet Union and why I leave. Jim nodded. He started to thank Vasily for the documents, but the Russian cut him off. Bah, stupid Americans, he snarled. Save your thanks until you read. With that, he slammed the lid of the briefcase. Jim watched as the old man hoisted the briefcase and stormed out of the coffee house, leaving a neat stack of paper in his wake. Jim pulled at the leftmost door handle of the double doors leading into the bar, but failed to account for the momentum of his body. The sharp edge of the door slammed into his forehead as he both pulled it open and walked forward. Jim shook off the stunning self-administered blow. It hurt, but it was a secondary sensation. The four days of moving from bar to bar had left him largely disassociated from pain. It was certainly no worse than the rain of fists he encountered at the Irish pub two days ago, or the kicking he had received last night when a group of college students had found him sleeping in an alley. Jim had pissed a non-insignificant amount of blood onto the side of a bank that morning, and realized that he needed to get his feet under him or he would not survive the week. It took some time to decide if he cared about that, but when he arrived at a decision, he placed a call to his wife, and then a call to Vasily. He had gotten the man's answering machine. Jim had named a place and a time, but couldn't bring himself to explain what he wanted. In truth, he didn't really know. Vasily was in the far corner of the bar, and Jim waved off the hostess who tried to intercept him and turn him back. He was a rumpled mess. It wasn't just that he hadn't showered. After the assault in the alley, he had slept in a dumpster. The rank smell of rotting organic miscellanea clung to him. It had been hot and sticky and foul in the dumpster, but there had been protection among the refuse. Jim carefully scaled the chair across from Vasily. The man had a bottle of whiskey and two waiting glasses, one full, one almost empty. Jim grabbed at the squat glass filled with an amber liquid, but Vasily slapped a hand over the rim of the glass. No, he declared. You take this first. With his free hand, Vasily pushed a small round pill across the table. Jim eyed it uncertain. It is value, the old man explained. American doctors give it to women when her husband beat her. It helps. Jim tried to pull the glass of bourbon from Vasily, but the old man held firm, and Jim grudgingly acquiesced and dry swallowed the pill. Vasily held his hand over Jim's glass until it was clear the task was done. Only then did he slowly draw back his hand. Jim took a long drink from his newly liberated glass. The whiskey stung as it rolled across his tongue. Jim was in no mood to savor the sensation, but he appreciated the burning. He set the glass down on the table with clumsy anger. Fuck you, Petrov, he snarled, and fuck your whole country. Jim had a hard time focusing, but it seemed that Vasily was smiling at him. The smile was both sad and amused. It was, Jim realized, the smile of an old man watching a younger man getting kicked around by life. Did you read it all? Vasily asked. Jim shook his head. The world was spinning, but the pain where his ribcage had turned to garish purple was starting to ease. How far? Vasily asked. The babies, Jim sobbed. There was a long pause. Vasily did not respond, but instead slowly and deliberately refilled his own glass and then topped off Jim's. 
The bottle sat nearly empty. Don't drink too fast, the old man cautioned. Let the Valium work. Vasily took a pull of his own drink and set it down. It was sick fucking shit, Vasily offered. Novosbursk Institute did bad things. Bad things? Jim wailed. Yes, bad things. There was a pause. Jim. I wanted you to understand. It was a cruel thing that I'd do. But I do not want you to die. I want you to live. Jim shook his head and tried to grab for his bourbon. When he finally closed his hand around the cold glass, Vasily's hand was locked again over the rim. All the institutes were looking for energy. They wanted to find evidence of the fifth state of matter. In Leningrad, they worked with magnets. In Moscow, the institute used zinc and platinum capacitors. But in Novosbursk, they used blood. The research was successful, but it was so terrible. They find that damaged human tissue gives off small pulse of energy, the fifth state, but it is very small. Early calculations show it would take death of 4 billion people to conduct useful bioenergetics tasks, like sending bomb to other side of planet. Jim did a fuzzy recall of demographic trends before breaking in. That would be every man, woman, and child on Earth, he quavered. Vasily shrugged. Yes, it was impractical. So researchers at Novosbursk, they tried to get more energy out of each death. They tried different things. Some good, some. No. Most bad. Very bad. Vasily took his hand off of Jim's drink and took a swig of his own. It was Cold War thinking. Soviet Union had 200 million people. 150 million die if Nixon make nuclear strike. So if Soviet Union sacrifice 100 million to destroy the United States, it would be good trade. The revolution would succeed. 50 million more people will live. You burn them to the bone, Jim sobbed meekly. No, that is monsters at Novosbursk. They did these things. It was not me. Was not me. Jim stared at the table. He felt sick. So what do I do? Jim asked the old man. Vasily shrugged. You go to Kmart and buy steel lockbox. Papers go in, and you throw a key in trash can. Jim nodded. He could do that. Vasily continued. Also get the prescription for the Valium. It is addictive, so do not use it every day. Get the hobby. Jim chuckled darkly. That seems kind of pointless. Yes. That is the point. Do something with mind and body that does not matter. When I was a young man, I run. But now I watch Gilgan's Island and I dream of Jeannie. I remember a Barbara Eden fan club. Jim nodded. He didn't have cable, but a lockbox made a certain kind of sense. Jim leaned forward to rest his arms and head on the table. It was so hard to hold himself up. The Valium was taking effect, and the coercive visions tearing at his mind were pushed to the side by a general fuzziness. Jim could hear Vasily talking, but it was too much work to lift his head to make conversation. You'll need the shower, Vasily commented. Jim considered agreeing, but instead he slipped into sleep. I really hope you enjoyed this story. Jim Galgadet will be a reoccurring character, and his struggle to manage depression proclivity for substance abuse, and some rather nasty occult organizations will all play out over four more stories. 